Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. To the first letter to the Thessalonians. Started in chapter 2, verse 13. As you turn there, let me give you some of the context. If you recall in Acts, we'll read about the time when Paul and uh, the apostles arrive in Thessalonica. They get there hot off persecution in the previous city. And they show up, and in a very short amount of time, they gather a number of, of converts. Now, this is probably one of Paul's smallest and, and poorest congregations. And very early on, they face persecution. In Acts, we read that some of the townspeople gathered up some of these new believers and, and took them uh, of, their, of their clothes and of their money, and they, they drug them before the, the city rulers. And, and they said, the apostles who have turned the world upside down have come here also. We need to get rid of these men. And the apostles quickly flee. Now, you can think of the letter of 1 Thessalonians as sort of Paul's explanation to the Thessalonians of what they had just experienced. Very shortly after he left, he pens this letter in the next city and, and sends it back. And part of what he's doing here is he is explaining to them this word that turned the world upside down, that just turned their lives upside down. This is the word Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Hear now God's word. But we ought always to give thanks. This is the wrong book. I'm sorry. That's 2 Thessalonians, which begins remarkably the same way. So I was confused. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they may be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sin. But wrath has come upon them at last. Pray with me. Our gracious, powerful God, we ask that you would help us this morning to labor in preaching and in, in listening to the end that you, Lord, would take this message off the page and thrust it into our hearts. Help us, Lord, to grasp the power of your word. Soften our hearts. Change us and conform us by this word into the image of your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The most powerful man in the world in the 16th century would have been the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. 
And his word would have been the most powerful word on earth. Although competing for that status sometimes was the medieval pope. And his word was often just as, if not more, influential. And in 1521, the Holy Roman Emperor was in the same room as a number of the Pope's cardinals who spoke for him. And this was at a council called the Diet of Worms. The Pope's men were ready and poised to, to give the powerful word heretic and apply it to Martin Luther. And the Emperor was just as ready to give the powerful word of a death sentence. And this is the context, this is the scene in which Luther engaged, if you will, in a battle of the words. Johann von Eck, the papal accuser, put to Luther the question, will you recant? And Luther, after a, a night of prayer and of feasting on God's promises, responds with these famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that men often err and contradict each other, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. We know that long before and long after Martin Luther stands a line of people who have been willing to die for the truth of God's word. Among them stand, of course, Jesus himself and, and Paul, and also this first few churches of, 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 uh, of Acts, of, of Paul's ministry, including the, the Thessalonian church here. And the common conviction that, that these men had, the, com the common conviction that gave them the courageous faith to contend against these capitulations of the spirit of the age turned on the question, is the gospel of Jesus Christ the word of man or the word of God? And our text this morning teaches us the continued importance of answering this question for ourselves. And it will also teach us that accepting the word of Christ will entail persecution with Christ, but it will also entail perseverance with Christ so that we might proclaim Christ. To get there this morning, the text will bring us to consider four things. First, how it is that God's word comes to men. Secondly, how it is that God's word works in men. Third, how to know God's word is working in men. And finally, what happens when God's word comes into conflict with the world of men? So first, if, if you need to know God's word, and you do, to contend with a world that is hostile to God, how do you get it? Look at verse 13 with me. Paul gives thanks that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. So Thessalonica would have been a standard stop of these, these tours, of these traveling philosophers who would come up from Athens or, or Corinth and sell their wisdom to whoever would throw a coin in the hat or put them up for the night or feed them a meal. 
And time and time again in Paul's ministry, he's having to defend himself and to explain that his ministry is a fundamentally different sort of thing. First of all, of course, his message was different. He wasn't spewing a form of Stoicism or, or of Platonism. His message was the unattractive yet somehow powerful folly of a crucified king. And second, the way he went about it was, was different. And this was the point of the verses prior to our passage, that, that Paul's ministry wasn't a boastful one. He wasn't presumptuous. He was, as he says, humble and, and nurturing like a mother, encouraging like a father. But the third way his ministry was different, and this is the point of verse 13, is that the source was different. The source was different. Paul was not carrying around pamphlets titled, Paul's Idea About the Jew Named Jesus, or Legends of Resurrection in a Far-Off Land. No, it wasn't Paul's message at all, and it wasn't even a message handed to him the way that maybe a king's herald would just read off of a scroll. Now, Paul's message was unique because it was put upon him. It was seared into his heart, and he was branded by it. The moment that the resurrected Christ appeared to him in blinding light, knocked him off his horse, spoke like thunder, blinded him, and resurrected Saul as Paul. The message quite literally made the man. So wherever Paul preaches now, he is nothing like a peddler of Platonism. He is not a peddler of the gospel for change, but he is a conduit from God to man that is charged with the very power of what he preached. And Paul is not unique in this way. This is the model of Christian preaching. This is what Christian preaching has been since the foundation of the church. This is the model of verse 13 of how God's word comes to men. God speaks to men through men changed by the word. Another way to put this is just to say that the extraordinary word of God comes through ordinary means. We have physical Bibles with pages and ink. We have programming and pixels that give us digital Bibles. We have human memory with which we capture the word. We sing the word with our lungs. We sing with our, our tongues. We hear it preached with ordinary speech. And we show up every week and we do these ordinary things through which God does an extraordinary work. How? How does God's word work in men? Or we can ask the way the Shorter Catechism does, question 89. How is the word made effectual to salvation? Answer, the spirit of God maketh the reading but especially the preaching of the word and effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So first the Spirit makes the ordinary means effectual means. But second, I would also tell you that it works, the word works because God's word, unlike human word, is a perfectly personal and powerful word. As Paul reminds the readers of Ephesians in chapter 2, they heard the gospel when, 
quote, Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off. So Paul knows that Christ never visited Ephesus. But Paul also knows that whenever he preaches, it is nothing less than Christ preaching. The shepherd's voice calls to his sheep through the word preached. That's not something we can grasp without appreciating that it is something miraculous. That is an entanglement of the natural and and the supernatural. The fidelity and, and the vigor of this small persecuted church comes from their conviction that what they heard was the voice of the resurrected and ascended Christ, even as it was carried out by by men on Christ's mission. And so Calvin very appropriately says that the gospel is as far above human opinion as heaven is above the earth. Do not forget, Christ the King, what the word is. It is not an opinion. And it is not one option from among many. It may be the folly of man, but it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Because it is the personal, powerful God who speaks. And so nurturing a courageous faith that can contend with the world hostile to God requires that we come again and again and again to these ordinary places where we are built up, sanctified, and recreated by the extraordinary word. Notice in the text, when Paul says they became imitators, he's not so much talking about a conscious decision that they made. He's saying that God made them into something. So this theme starts back in chapter 1, verse 5. The gospel came to them in power. Verse 6, you became imitators. Verse 7, you became examples. Here again, you became imitators. The Thessalonian witness to the world was just like Paul's own witness. It's a result of the fact that God has not just handed them a message to repeat, but he's actually, by the power of the message, made his enemies into his own mouthpieces. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. John 17.17 17, Jesus prays for you, And he says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Isaiah 55. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it, It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God brings life to our souls the way that rain brings life from the ground. So, if you were at our last prayer meeting, Wednesday evening, recall the reflection that Jack shared with us of his trip to Poland. Here were these Polish congregations thrown all of a sudden into a crisis mode where God had asked them to a a radical hospitality for Ukrainian refugees. 
What prepared those churches for that moment? And what, what would prepare us for an extraordinary moment like that? Well, as the Polish pastors saw it, and as Jack articulated it, it was that they were faithful in the ordinary. It was an ordinary, regular diet of the Word of God doing extraordinary work. I mean, you can just take yourselves as examples. Just think of those singular moments of, of guilt and conviction, of joy or of sorrow or of thankfulness or of, or of motivation that has come over you over the years at individual points in time as you sit in these pews. Those twinges are the handiwork of God's two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Hebrews 4. Or again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that he preaches not himself, but Jesus as Lord, because the same God who says, let there be light, is the God who shines in your hearts so that you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible you read contains this powerful, creative word. And by your familiarity with it, it creates in you a personal familiarity with Jesus. And it turns you into his likeness. This is the miracle that happens to us when we employ our ordinary eyes and ears and brains when we hear, study, read the Bible. It's a miracle that involves our own labor. Wouldn't it have been so cool if you could have been Peter, right? Whose, whose hand and arm God actually used to perform a miracle. That's the same kind of thing happening when the word works in you through the ordinary means. And with all of these promises, However, also comes a, a command, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or, as First Peter has, has put it for us, gird up the loins of your mind. We have to work at filling our minds with God's promises. Otherwise, they will be drowned out by the devil's own and by the world's own promises. Christian, despite how you may feel, Despite how you may feel, you are not hopelessly trapped by those temptations with which you are so familiar, with which you may battle every day. But your victory in this life over those temptations will not come from any place other than from returning to the promises of God. God's word to you about Jesus' victory over sin and his sacrifice for your sin is the creator God's persuasive rebuttal against the devil's lie that sin will gratify you. And the word or the lie that you choose to feed on is the one you are asking to do a work in you. Our culture 
and the bombardments of the various media we consume abound. They abound with little lies about what is good and what is false. What is, tr- what is true, what is false, what is good, and what is bad. What is gratifying, what will fill you up, and what is spiritually deadly. So we need to be cautious about our diet and how we're filtering what we hear. What word do you feed yourself with? So Paul brings us from verse 13 to verse 14. Now by telling us how exactly he knows that God's word is at work. And this is an intimidating litmus test. The evidence of the word's work is that it makes its recipients into imitators. That can mean a lot of things, but specifically here, Paul focuses on the imitation of suffering. Suffering. Like the believers in Judea, like the apostles, like the prophets, like the Messiah. The word of Christ makes us look like Christ through the pattern of Christ's own life. First dying, then resurrection. First suffering, then glory. First humiliation, then exaltation. But notice that Paul doesn't just say you became imitators of Christ. Verses 14 to 16 say a whole lot more than that. And the point is, is this, that Paul wants you to understand the significance of your suffering. The significance of your suffering by helping you to see the story of your suffering. See, rather than than turning in on yourself, suffering actually invites you to, to lift your gaze beyond your present horizon to view the larger story of which you are a part. The ironic tragedy of of Christ is that the riches of his mercy and grace went out to the world precisely because he was rejected by his own people. And out from the cross comes this this centrifuge of, of the same ironic, redemptive suffering. In Acts 8.1, we we read that the Christians in Judea, the ones Paul talks about here, were scattered because of persecution. And then precisely because of their suffering, then the gospel goes out to the world, to the nations. Now, Paul just a chapter ago said that the Thessalonians' own faith was sounding forth so that the apostles had no need to even say anything. And that that sounding forth, excuse me, happened precisely because of their suffering, of their faith in the midst of suffering. The Thessalonians heard the story of Jesus, and as that happened, they actually began to participate in that same story. The profound reality is that the Word of God does not just make you look like Jesus, but it makes you look like Him precisely because it unites you to Him. When Paul says imitators, again, he he doesn't just mean that they mimicked the suffering. They didn't just ask WWJD. No, the Thessalonians were actually taking part in the sufferings of Christ. This is why elsewhere Paul can say that he too, in his own body, is filling up 
the sufferings of Christ. Where would Paul have learned such a thing? On the Damascus Road, Jesus did not ask him, Saul, why are you persecuting those people? He asked, why are you persecuting me? Look at verse 14 again. Paul speaks of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Those who suffer for God's word, in other words, are in two places at once. They are in Judea, for example, or Thessalonica, or Conchahokan, and they are also in Christ Jesus. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Colossians 3. You are anchored there, Hebrews 6. You are fastened there by the firm hand of God. You are firmly in him which means that his victory, his resurrection story over suffering is true of you. His victory is more true of you than anything else you may feel about yourself in a present moment of suffering. So for example, wallowing in a bitter pity party is out of accord with where you are. Being in him and in his victory makes the present suffering not the root of anxiety or fear or joylessness or thanklessness. Those are misunderstandings of your suffering. Rather, the reality that, that you suffer in him makes your present suffering a testimony, sounding forth God's power and his strength and his grace made perfect precisely in your weakness. The word of Christ will call you to participate in the sufferings of Christ in order that you might participate in the testimony of Christ. We must understand, people of God, that that is the significance of our suffering. At the end of the day, although we do deeply mourn suffering of all kinds, we mourn for the victims of suffering, what gives our suffering meaning is not my story as the victim, but Jesus' story in my life. Jesus' story as the victor. It's not triumphalism, it's hope. There's a difference. This leads us to our our final consideration about how it is that the word of God is received in the world of men. Look at verse 15. First it says, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove out the apostles. Think back to the Nehemiah reading. Israel's rejection of Jesus was the climax of Israel's pattern of prophet killing. Notice the specificity of, of that. The refrain through scriptures is not that Israel killed her kings or her priests, although at times that too did happen. But the refrain through scripture, the refrain that Paul picks up on here, is that Israel killed their prophets. They did violence to God's messengers when the word of God offended their world and their loves. 
Calling men to repentance is a dangerous trade because men love their sins. But from Paul's perspective, that dangerous trade is the same one that he himself is involved in. It's the same activity that the Judean Christians were involved in. It's the same activity that Thessalonians were involved in. And yes, by that same principle, it's the activity we're called to. The the dangerous trade of our calling is presenting the person of, of Jesus to the world that hates him. Now the message of excuse me, the measure of of time, of the Jewish rejection of Jesus, Paul goes on to say, the measure of time of of the Jewish rejection of the word and the prophets that that, that climactically happened in their their casting away of their own Christ, it it was filled up like like a cup. And, And so also we know from elsewhere that the same wrath that will fall upon unbelieving Jews is is the wrath that will fall upon all unbelieving men who fill up the sin of persecuting the saints of Christ until Christ comes again. In other words, even though you are called to suffer, there is a promise that victims of the gospel will become vindicated by the gospel. But Paul also says that the The persecutors displease God and are opposed to all men, opposed even to themselves because they hinder the very word of their own salvation. Those who do not align themselves with the goal here of of spiritually subduing the world with the gospel, those who hinder that goal are aligning themselves against what God is pleased with and against God himself. There are no sidelines in this contest. You have been called to contend against worldliness, against sin, by subduing it with the gospel. The gospel that is itself made more manifest when you suffer like Christ, when the world rejects that gospel. We have never been in a greater if you will, battle of the words than we are right now. Culture right now says that your speech is actually violence to me. It's violence to me if it does not acknowledge the decisions that I have made about my own identity. It's actually violence against me if you use They say the wrong pronoun. You do violence to me if you do not acknowledge that I am whatever I say I am. In other words, you do violence against me if you do not agree that I am who I am. We are engaging in I am culture. Whose words oppose the I am and which God's own word opposes. Courageous faith must once again contend over the question, whose words? Whose words? Is the gospel of freedom, as the world would would put it, man's word about his own identity? Or is the good news God's word, which is at work in you, to create an identity. How do we go about contending for the right answer? 
There's truth, I think, in the statement that, that God's word is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just have to let it loose. But that, of course, does not imply passivity. Right? We have to be ready in every season. We have to store up the words in our hearts. We have to have an answer for our hope. But we must not forget that God's word also does not need us to justify it. It just is the voice of the creator God, no matter what anyone else thinks or says it is. And your job, our job, is to faithfully proclaim that truth. The rejection of that truth is not your fault. In fact, as we see in this passage, the rejection of God's people is kind of part of the plan. And we must also know that the sword of the Spirit is not a weapon of convenience. It is not strapped to our hip, ready for us to wield in defense of ourselves. What is at stake is not your reputation as a reasonable thinker. The sword is not strapped to your hip, ready for you to defend yourself, but rather it is protruding from your own chest. It has slain you. It is sheathed in your heart by its transforming you into the image of Christ through suffering. We wield it well when it is stained by the blood of our own experience and when it is sharpened by our own personal familiarity with the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Our transformed lives are like the fire that came down from heaven and consumed the altar and the water that Elijah set up to silence the prophets of Baal, the false word. We are what God has done. So when we contend with the words of men, we don't need to be craftier than the serpent. We can say with swords sticking out from our hearts, I do not suffer in the status of victim or the oppressed, but I suffer in Jesus Christ and in the status of his victory. My salvation does not come <clears throat> in canceling my oppressors or in legislating a radically egalitarian utopia. No, my salvation comes in my dying to sin in Jesus Christ and being raised to new life. The testimony of my suffering is not my story about who I say that I am, who everyone else rejects. No, it's the testimony of the rejected Messiah, who he is and who he has made me to be. Man, your word cannot save you. Hear and believe in the voice of Christ. Men are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our good God, you speak such a good word to us through Christ. We pray that that word would be the defining word in our lives. The word with which we interpret all other words 
the Word. We believe in the Word. We share the Word. We pass on to our children. Conform us to it. Change us by it, even through suffering, into the image of Jesus. We pray these things in your Son's strong name. Amen.